it's like the only thing I have left on this earth is my ability to pick and choose what I show people. And so if that is taken away, then like, what do I have left? I think attachment types live in context, right? Like everything is in, has to be in context for them all the time. Attachment types, types take identity that take their own identity too seriously. The pinning down of identity, it, it feels that attachment types um, are resisting that even as we want to be known in some way. The hexad types are not listening, and the attachment types are. The big hormone enneagram. Hi, I'm John Lukovic, sexual uh, self-pres, holding five wing, four five eight trifix. Hi, I'm David Gray, self-pres, sexual nine with one nine seven four trifix. What up? It's Emika. I'm an eight wing seven, sexual self-pres with eight five four fixes. Hi, I'm Nancy. I am a self-pres social three wing four with a six nine trifix if you like our podcast guys make sure you go like and subscribe on the apple podcast app and if you really like us you should definitely leave us a review we're back at big hormone enneagram we've got xander and courtney uh to further talk about attachment to disconnect attachment types and also probably maybe we'll get into rejection and frustration uh before we get into that we have several plugs we have first is my book if you've been listening to this podcast and all this free shit and you've not bought my book, you're a bad person. Yes. Uh, go ahead and buy my book on Amazon or bookshop.org or uh, what is it, Barnes & Nobles. Second plug. David has a trifix book on anygrammar.com or his site, anyasite.com. Uh, I wrote an intro to it, and it's a great visual guide on trifix and stems. Uh, a lot of people have been writing that they really enjoy it, and it's been very clarifying. And for all those attachment types, get it before everyone else does. Don't be left out. <laughs> get it before everyone else does. Um, Emika and I are going to be doing the Enneagram Global Summit. And uh, I'm going to be doing Type 5, Type 7, and the Instincts with Mario Sakura. Emika is doing Type 8. Uh, if you sign up in the links in the show description, uh, we will make a little bit of money for the, with each sign-up somehow, even though it's free. The Enneagram Global Summit is going on right now. And you can still check out John's session or my session on replay before it's gone after 24 hours. Real quick, I have a funny anecdote to share. Some of y'all know that there's a basketball player with a name that's very similar to mine. His last name is, uh, he's Emika and his last name is Okafor. So apparently this basketball player who's been shadowing me my entire life spoke at a shift summit in May. Oh, wow. Yes, he did. And the only reason I know this is because in my Enneagram Global Summit panel, uh, there's a section that shows you like your audio recording for your summit, and they had put his summit recording in my panel. <laughs> like, what are the odds that the guy that has this most famous guy who has the most similar name to mine is interested in the Enneagram, spoke at the summit, and they Wait, mistook- he spoke in the Enneagram Summit? Yes, he spoke Holy at the- shit. He spoke at the Enneagram Summit in uh, May. There, it wasn't, I don't think it was a global summit. It was like called the Keong or something. Uh-huh, okay. And it was about eight. Wow. Yeah. Like, what the fuck are the odds? But wow. they, mis- they mistook me for that guy, and they put his summit recording in my panel. And so they're going to, it's just a funny mistake. 
So uh, if you guys meet each other, one of you has to kill the other. I, it's gonna be, I'm the winner. I, all, there can only be one. <laughs> the world will implode if there's two. And amazing. Like, I thought I, yeah. there was no chance that there would be any other Emika in the Enneagram, and here I am with competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, really. <laughs> all right, and then uh, the, the fourth plug is for uh, Dark Arts Academy for all you little uh, Hogwarts whatevers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I got to watch uh, the one where Joseph and Emma and David go through Joseph's Tinder connections, and it's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> sign up for $19 a month on Enneagrammer.com. Uh, it was really good. It was really funny. It was very informative, and you get to see the three most handsome people in Enneagram yeah. do their thing. And then finally, uh, it is our hundredth episode coming up, and so uh, call into our love line and tell us who do you like to fuck, marry, kill, or adopt <laughs> out of the four of us, or tell us what you've liked, what you've disliked, uh, anything that we mostly social blinds here uh, have some sense of what's going on out there. So please uh, write up your que- your question or comment before you call in, and uh, and then read it to us on the love line. Emma, could you have the love line number? Yeah, it's 323-696-0647. Let me make sure that's correct. <laughs> but I think that's correct. All right. So uh, last time we were trying to get... Um, well, okay. So to back up, listen to episodes with Xander and Courtney previously on Object Relation. A couple months ago, weeks ago, something or the other, uh, Xander came up with a very interesting insight into attachment types, 3, 6, and 9. And, you know, in contrast to frustration and rejection, uh, it was a little bit harder to kind of get clear on what attachment really meant as an object relational affect. And Xander had the, uh, with a post uh, he posted on the Enneagram Universe group, I uh, had the brilliant insight that it is attachment to disconnect, that nine, six, and three have different ways of not sharing their location or not being seen and adapting, in, in the ego activity of adapting to try to create a connection or attachment. Um, but in so doing, in so adapting, they obscure their location, they obscure who they are. And so there's this sort of uh, paradox of trying to connect to adaptation in a way that uh, obscures my identity. And nine, three, and six have different flavors of this. And uh, not last episode, but the previous episode, we had Courtney and, and Xander on to discuss this. And uh, we were trying to get, nail down three and how three is attached attached disconnect and uh i just listened to the episode but i can't remember what we left off <laughs> last time we so. we finished at six uh yeah we'd done three and then we did six and we were going to move on to nine and then we were going to save that for mm-hmm. part two mm-hmm. so before uh i say any more uh does anybody else have anything to add no <laughs> <laughs> here comes the bermuda <laughs> i'm trying to keep swirling my... already I'm trying to keep my location obscure, so. <laughs> All right, so one thing that I talked to Courtney about very briefly yesterday, uh, as we were sort of, like, preparing or thinking about ideas, was, like, the idea, in, in my understanding, is that attachment is outsourcing one or both of the primary functions as represented by the roughly or vaguely, like, fathering and mothering. So, like, the protective function and the nurturing function. Protective functioning being, you know, the guidance around individuation, around how to create structure for oneself and how to move independently in the world. And protective function 
excuse me, and the nurturing function is like being seen, being loved, being cared for, and attended to. And that attachment types are unconsciously outsourcing one or both of those functions externally. And the idea is that, you know, as a, as a kid uh, or baby, that the parents were providing these psychological functions or these psychological structures. And that I, in, under ideal circumstances, they would represent a template that the child could internalize and have their own internal protective function, nurturing function. Uh, but in all of us, no matter if we're attachment or not, somehow this process is interrupted or... Um, is uh, stalled or not able to be integrated. And so at least in terms of attachment types, I think all of us know stories of attachment types basically attaching to the wrong people and circumstances mm-hmm. and getting into relationships that are abusive or dynamics that are just like don't foster their development, don't help them grow. So I was kind of curious about what is basically like a good attachment? Like what is an attachment that actually helps the three, six, or nine integrate those functions and individuate and if there is a way to help attachment types recognize a positive attachment versus a negative attachment and i was wondering from the four attachment types on here if anybody's got an example (laughs) (laughs) if anybody has an example of attaching to either the wrong thing or the right thing Mm. or if if it's a little bit of both and what that process is like and you know, maybe especially when y'all were younger, like if there was like an example of like, like how does an attachment form? Like, is it early life impressions that sort of become projected onto or sort of recapitulated by somebody new? Like, how does that work? And 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 my my sense of with attachment types is they lose themselves when there's a negative attachment. It would seem like a positive attachment or like a a beneficial relationship would be one that helps them build their sense of self and locate themselves. Well, I mean, I have something to say because I always do, but I, I'm wanting, I'm wondering if the nines want to jump in first because we did the three and the six two weeks ago. They, the nines don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> do the nines have anything to add? <sighs> <laughs> Here we go. Um, Xander. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been thinking about how. In terms of object relations, the nine right has to deal with the miss of both the functions. And how I've been thinking about it is in terms of the three centers of intelligence and how for the six, the miss is for the protecting function, and that has to do with the head center. And for the three, the miss is with the nurturing function, and that has to do with the, the heart center. But when we get to both uh, both being missed, it somehow correlates to the body center, the gut center, and how I've experienced this, or how just from reflection, from meditation, how I've really come to understand it in myself and been working on it in myself is actually from a very social instinct perspective of growing up as an immigrant. So I was born in the Philippines, but I moved to Singapore at a very young age. And so my parents were also immigrants uh, to Singapore. And so I think, and and this is conceptualizing to me as a baby, but, you know, so if I were to look to them to see how do do I exist as a person in this world, you know, they, they, they had no idea, right? They were immigrants themselves. And so... At a very young age, I, I had to outsource my sense of being in the world 
to all these kinds of factors that were telling me, oh, this is how you should be, or this is how you, sh you shouldn't be in the world. And not just in, ten in terms of guidance, right, but in terms of like what it consists to be an identity in the world also. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's from a childhood perspective uh, has kind of carried through to where I am today to how I'm always trying to locate my own sense of being in relation to others and in relation to like the environment, not just in terms of relationships to people, but in terms of the environment also. The what does that mean? That in. So like, how do I understand my experience in this world? I always have to kind of brush up against what does not resonate with me in order to find what does resonate with me. So like, I mean, one, one big example that, that I think of when, I'm, when, I moved, when I moved to the US is that, and again, this is from a social perspective, people always initially treat me as like an, an Asian American, oh, like an Asian American who grew up in the US. And so there are these kinds of stereotypical experiences that you know, pe people kind of signal to me that I should have or, sh you know, mm. um, but I don't, you know. And so I come up against this disconnect here to what I am trying to locate outside of myself is what I'm supposed to have been feeling as, you know, as a being, being seen by other people, but I don't. And it's through that I don't, I don't resonate with that, that I actually am getting more in touch, like, that sends me deeper into myself and say, okay, what? What is my experience then? And what does it mean that I'm brushing up against the edge of something else? So are you saying that maybe there's sort of an expectation unconsciously that other people will see you or know your experience in some way, and then when there is a mismatch there, then that allows you to reflect on what your actual experience is? Yeah, the mismatch, yeah, that's where things feel like they start to solidify moment to moment mm -hmm. so like seems like something like uh your experience as an immigrant is like it's not like the deepest layer of who you are right 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 so when it comes to like being in a romantic relationship or like a close friendship or something and you're not seen like i you know i see nines all the time talking about not being seen and like the wound that is while also hiding their location how does that play out in terms of helping you discover your location when there's a when you're not seen? So you're asking more in terms of in context of intimate relationship. Yeah, just like in terms of these, how a mismatch or a you know maybe I'm equating a mismatch and a <laughs> lack of being seen too much, but uh, it seems like not being seen is something that nines really struggle with. At the same time. It sounds like what you're saying is that this sort of mismatch gets into who you are. Yeah. I mean, there, kind of the experience is of being edgeless. That's kind of the, the default experience of mine. And so what that mismatch brings is an edge mm -hmm. where I can push up against. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, Xander, what I'm curious to hear in your reply is, you know, when you spoke about your immigrant experience, and, you know, that's like an easier, more accessible version of relationship to an other and identity. What I heard you say is basically I need disconnection. I need you. I need the outside people to articulate something. And then I say, I'm not that. And then you didn't see me properly. 
And it's through that negation that then allows you to like begin to actually explore the opposite, which is like who you are. And I yeah. think what John is asking is if the inherent setup of a relationship for the nine and maybe all attachment types is I need to feel that you didn't see me in order for me to begin the process of even exploring who I might be. How do you discern then like what is a healthy version of that versus an unhealthy version? For me, at least where I'm at right now, a healthy version is where I don't really actually need someone else to do that for me, where I can do that for myself. It's, it's almost the opposite of self-soothing in that it's almost like a self-missing. So that's, that's where I, I'm at right now. And maybe, you know, in the future, I would be able to kind of transfer that, that feeling onto in terms of my relationships. But, but right now, it's like, where, where do I not see myself? How can I let parts of myself come through? All right. So something that is confusing to me about nine is um, there is this, like, I want to be seen quality. And at the same time, there's this sense of needing a kind of contrast or negation to find my location as a nine. But at the same time as a nine, I'm putting a lot of work into not facing that negation or not experiencing a negation because I'm trying us to get along or to merge or to, uh, you know, to smooth things over. And so it seems like uh, for a nine to wake up, they need some sort of strong wake-up call, strong negation. And like what I was asking before is in the absence of negation, in, in the sense of like there's affirmation around or there's just no contrast between yourself and somebody else, is there just like the assumption, I guess the assumption, it's just an assumption of sameness, right? That's sort of operating and that's why uh, a negation leads you into finding your location? Um, I guess one, one question way I would frame it also is, you know, just in my own experiences with nines, um, some of whom I have really close relationships and I, I really care about, you know, I, I try really hard to ask questions to create a space where they're comfortable articulating their experience and me just listening and without having to sort of have that negation happen first. I'm really curious. Tell me your, whatever you say, I really, really want to hear it. And my experience has been, it's very difficult to sustain that kind of interaction and it's like the nine really wants to only talk 20% of the time is what it feels like to me. And it, it takes a lot to try to get the nine to continue to open and reveal without having had the, even if it's not a negation, it is, it's like something else to push up, you know, me yeah. saying something first and then them pushing off or pushing differently or pushing in to, to what I've said. Yeah. And it may not be that negation is the right word. Cause I think you're right, Courtney, that it's like, in a lot of cases, it's not necessarily a negation, but there's some sort of like Alexander talks a lot about uh, me being hexad gives her like something to push against to find her location, you know, because I'm like sort of I'm not I'm not adapting. <laughs> and and so there's this. Um, yeah. So it like sort of forces her to like find where she's at by bouncing off me. But at the same time, there's this issue of I think in, in the first call that we had with Xander on. Um, I think Emeka named it where when a nine that's like typed as a, like t types themselves as a four, for example, gets typed as a nine, 
their location becomes you know more definite, but they'll often protest the whole idea of typing itself. Mm-hmm. That there's like uh, the ty- oh like typing isn't really that limited, or you can't really know someone's type, or you know it's like it's like rebelling against the category of type itself once it becomes specific because it's like you can't really know me or box me in. And the the conflict there is like, well, you can, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you can, and like, uh, you know, this will become an issue for the nine feeling seen or not seen, where it's like, actually, like, whether it's type or some other thing, like this is where you are, like whether whether you signed up for it or not, like this is your lo- this is at least like, this is something that you're you're presenting or your choices you're making or something like that. Is is this making sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. almost like someone who you repeatedly uh shows up at um a gay bar for example and and maybe they you, they're not sure if they're gay or uh and they sh- if you see that person repetitively consecutively showing up at the same bar, you'd be like, "Hey, uh you're probably interested in men sexually. And then and maybe they'd be like, no, 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 no. I just like the, the ambiance and I just, you know, whatever. And they're not committal to what they're doing. <laughs> right. But it's like after a certain point, at least from my hex perspective, is like, this is where you're at. Like right. this, your, your exactly. actions are repetitively right. saying one thing, but you're not wanting it to be defined explicitly. So Brian, uh, a couple of times has told me that one of his like, I guess triggers to anger would be uh, someone assuming what he's thinking before like, you know, talking to him about it. And um, I've just seen that happen a few times (laughs) where it's like, but I know you're there. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. The issue about typing, and this is one of the gripes that we've gotten, particularly from uh, some attachment types that are offended that we're not factoring their input or involving them in the typing process i mean there are a couple ways you can do typing you can you can do a session with someone and you can have like a back and forth conversation uh with them and arrive at the typing that way or the way we've been doing it which is that we don't actually need to talk to you you can you know answer these questions and your type is going to show itself in the span of 5 10 15 20 30 plus minutes and that that is, uh, for some attachment types, seems like such a almost offensive thing that I'm not, my input, you're deciding who I am or, you know, who I am, quote unquote, my type, without talking to me about it. And it's like, what we're saying is that the type, it's, I don't have to talk to you. You're doing it. Your location is so clear. Yeah. Um, well, but, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Well, it's also, um, I think attachment types live in context right? Like everything is in, has to be in context for them all the time. Um, and I think that's, you know, partially social, but I think that's also an attachment thing as well. So when you take someone, an attachment type out of context, just a video, how could you possibly know them? Because everything we do is in context. Hmm. Can you say more about what that means? Uh, well, I mean, so for a three, for instance, I, I can only speak from my experience here. Um, everything I do is based on the situation. Uh-huh. So everything I say, every, how I act, how I smile, how I stand, everything is based on the situation. So it's like, 
Um, there was a certain person on the Enneagrammer Facebook recently who disagreed that they were a three and then um, said, you know, it's because I'm uh, a in a different place in my life right now. And that's why I see more of this, more three-ish than this type. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very attachment type thing to do is, well, you aren't seeing me in, in my true self. You're just seeing what I put forward. It's like, yeah, but what you put forward, that, right. that's, that's more attachment. <laughs> yeah, so it's like sort of the shifting goal posts sometimes. Cause it's like, I mean, at least my my sense is a hexad, and I think this is something I've always been really aware of and sensitive to that I'm sort of realizing these days, maybe not everybody is, is that, like, if you do something, that says something about you. Yes. Yes. And I've always been, like, like that's why I get really, uh, like, that. that's at least why I just, like, rationalize to myself, like, my interest in politics, because it was, like, it doesn't matter what I identify with. If I'm going along with certain ideologies that are out there, it's just like, that's what it is. Then mm -hmm. I'm like a liberal or I'm whatever, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, I'm just that by default. doesn't matter what I think. It's like what I, I participate in something because that's like, that's what you are. And so is that something that attachment types have a hard time seeing or disagree with or, or what? Yeah, I have a, I mean, personally, I have a hard time with, that uh particularly with politics it's taken me a long time to come around to kind of understanding that viewpoint of like well your actions don't match your beliefs um therefore your beliefs aren't your beliefs mm -hmm. um it, it's taken me probably until like george floyd to really kind of face that and be like okay this mm, this is actually uh, this is actually something you need to think about and you need to be more active in your decision making because in situations, it's so easy for me to just morph into whatever is happening in the moment, morph into whoever you want me to be and not stand against. So, I mean, maybe this is stuff we've already covered, but I always feel like when I uh, learn about attachment types, my mind is blown all open again. And so, <laughs> so you're no. welcome. Yeah, like go back to asking questions that you guys care about because I don't want to just hijack this, but like. He's about to hijack it. I'm going to hijack it if nobody stops me. <laughs> do it. Um, well, do it. I, I do. I, I was listening and, to And you. I want to do my spiel after Courtney. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I want to have the nine perspective on this too, because I, I guess what I hear John asking and then Nancy replying is the pinning down of identity. It, it feels that attachment types um, are resisting that even as we want to be known in some way. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and so for me, the question is, why are we resisting? What is the risk? what are we making up the story is that doesn't allow us to be pinned down. And, you know, for me, it's all about, and I think it's really, I guess for me, a very clear example is the, despite being a social type, like my Facebook profile is very, very minimal. And a lot of my, I have no, I don't, I'm not on social media at all. And I hadn't really thought about that as a, unwillingness to identify. Um, but I do think that there is something around from a six perspective, especially social six, very focused on alliance and needing flexibility um, in terms of how what I stand for 
so that I can continue to be in relationship with people I might need to be in relationship with. I'm remembering something that Nancy said on, uh, I think, the attachment to Tiskinet call with Xander, that if the location is defined, then the game is up. Like, there's nothing left to do. Like, the that sort of attachment game, at least for three, which is like, just tell me what I need to do. Uh, but it, it's predicated on being a little bit vague about your location. So you can sort of maintain that feeling of not f- fully being supported and f- being seen so that you can keep doing that. Because at least from my Hexad perspective is if I can see your location, which I can, then let's just go about doing what needs to be done. But if the location is kept obscured and vague, then we can sort of go around in circles and um, there can be that wiggle room to keep that adapting game going. I think Nancy feels the same way in a slightly different way. But I, you know, I think from my perspective, even as I'm talking to one person, I, I'm still aware. It's like I never forget that there's another audience at the same time. Yeah. That there could be another audience at the same time who nice. might have a completely different perspective. Why is that important? Because if I'm interested in maintaining connection with you, but I know that there's another person that like possibly is sitting somewhere else that I also need to be in relationship with who feels differently. Like if that's like a specter that's like overhanging all of my relationships, it makes me unwilling to commit because I, I'm worried that if this other person appears all of a sudden, I've got to somehow accommodate them or loop them in. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me of what Beth was saying about being on here and, and just the way she exists in general and feeling like she wants people to like her in general and just people in general out there, not that she has close relationships. So there's this kind of like generalizing the self where mm. I don't want to push in too hard into any hard edges. I, I want to maintain some level of, likability and uh, ability to connect to the the average person yeah so i'm curious from the nine perspective david and xander what feels at risk to you by by daring to locate well for me um i don't know it's i'm i'm invested in being a strange mysterious something and you coming towards me and wanting that and me not giving you ultimately what you want from me. Why are you investing in that? Um, that's how I'm doing attachment. I'm so this. Uh, this has me launch my spiel on <laughs> how I would answer whatever the original question kind of was around how I'm doing attachment in the first place. I mean, I think it's greatly. Um, affected by the fact that I'm social blind mm. because it because attachment is so well it's other people and so I don't I don't even know what I'm doing with other people you know what I mean I don't I don't have social intelligence to a significant degree or or I'm just not even putting my intention my attention on qualities of interactions at the level of the social instinct qualities of the interaction at the sexual instinct that's where i have interest attention and uh ego investment and you know like one thing i was going to say is 
if we kind of crudely split, let's say, self-preservation instinct as sort of me alone by myself and sexual and social as involving other people, then I'm kind of handicapped as well by being self-preservation first, handicapped around attachment and what it even is or doing it. Um, so the the tool that I have is the sexual instinct. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's led me to, you know, kind of develop the way that I did along with my early formative stuff is to be um, some kind of a sensual love object that people want and that people that draw people in. And then the self-pres piece comes in in the sense of but I'm not going to give you uh, what you want. I'm kind of holding back and there's a wall, right? It's not like I'm sexual dominant and I'm looking for ultimately that fusion, you know. I mean, there's another part of me that is maybe at the heart level, right? But at an instinctual level, the thing that I have to play with as an instinct that is other-oriented is the sexual instinct. And so that's why... I'm sort of, um, yeah, conjuring this kind of quality, these, tr um, these lures and things that pull people in and, and to different degrees of attraction or even different degrees of obsession with me. And that's a, that's a significant part of my history. And so that's how I'm doing attachment is with all of that strange game. I want to just interject real quick just to explain at least from how David does attachment is, I mean, as a social blind, it's, it's going to be weird, but part of what I see, at least the way that he's doing attachment to disconnect is that, yes, there's this mysterious razzle-dazzle that he's doing with um, just conceptual interestingness that pulls people in, but what's missing is him. Like, it's, it's yeah. not his location. True isn't a part mm -hmm. of uh his material like a lot of time i think his stuff is really interesting but it's not necessarily penetrating into david there's a lot of interesting colors but you can't really find him um in it whereas um mm -hmm. um i might be doing like a sexual instinct interestingness but it's it, you can i'm definitely there but it's it's not yeah. i'm not i'm not doing the attachment thing where it's like i'm inviting you to touch me but you can see a clear picture, whereas David, I think, is doing more of an attachment thing where he's inviting people to the party, but, you know, it's like a David party, but he's not actually there. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not in the room. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's almost like he's letting them dictate the terms of the attachment itself. Uh, not exactly, because, I mean, sure, there's maybe some of that, but I'm just gone, and so... Yeah, he's not so present. Try, try, go ahead and try to control it. I'm gone. It, <laughs> it feels like to me, it's like the door is wide open um, and everyone can come in and, and have fun with the David toys and, and trinkets and all that yeah. stuff. And the blow up but, doll of David. But David, it's yeah. a David party, but he's not there. Like you can't, if you want to actually get to know David and, and figure out like, what do you actually think? What are you doing with this? Where's it going? Like, how do we, um, you're not, he's not there for that. Uh, but he, it's going to be interesting. You're going to be pulled in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love to hear Xander's perspective because I, I do, I appreciate the, the instinct stacking, having a, um, 
having an impact on how the cell manifests. But that feeling of simultaneously being open and a wall, I feel that with a lot of minds. Yeah. Um, that image resonates for me. It's almost like this like marshmallow of like, you just like can put your hands all the way in, yet you're not holding onto anything. It's a cloud and a mountain at the same time or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. You don't push yeah. the mountain. You yeah. don't push it. Yeah, I'm invested in being in like, and being that cloud, I guess. I'm being that ocean. And so if I'm able mm -hmm. to be located and grasped, like it's this, I mean, that's, that's leading to like an ego death, which is scary. And I feel like what's at risk for me is kind of my, my autonomy or my ability to choose. It's like the only thing I have left on this earth is my ability to pick and choose what I show people. And so if that is taken away, then like what, what do I have left? Okay, so then what is relationship? Because it seems like the aim is to be in relationship and yet at the same time to keep it arm's length and obfuscate self and obfuscate what relationship is also. Does it make sense? Right, yeah. I mean, the, the point of relationship to, to me then is, is so that I can keep playing that game. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What is the point of an average relationship, which is basically we get to each push each other's buttons so we can do our thing and an elevated relationship? What would what would that be for you? Well, one one where my autonomy doesn't feel threatened by being known, I guess, where just because someone is able to locate me and, and, and know me at some categorical level, right, that, that they can box in this ocean. Like they can put me into a container. That doesn't mean that I am not also more than that. <laughs> All right. So from that point of view, it seems like on one hand you could read a, a a relationship that doesn't threaten your autonomy as one that just leaves you the fuck alone. Right. Right. That right. that would sort of be playing into right. Uh, just the nine disassociation. Mm -hmm. So is there a way in which you can have a relationship that in a sense, uh, it's like not that it threatens your autonomy, but that it makes you willingly show up in such a way that you're choosing. Because it seems like what you said before is that your your real choice is to sort of hide or not, right? Mm -hmm. And so, would the would the positive choice then be to show up? And like, what kind of relationship, or what would that require that there'd be a relationship that you wanted to show up in, to be seen, to be experienced, and to be like a co-creator of? Is that possible? Did Xander disappear? No, I'm I'm here. I I, I don't know. I'm thinking. It's a hard question. It's a hard question too. I know. I know. I'm just teasing. <laughs> I gotta I'm, give shit. I mean, I think I said this on my my the the first episode that I was on is that really I feel like the only time I I, I feel like I've experienced that is on psychedelics where I was really contending with this choice that is, is so clear to me under psychedelics, either I just let the world take over me and I am just resigned to flow in this raging river or, or I like, I try to grasp the river into my fingers and it, it was showing me, Oh, this is, this is, this feels like always the choice that you're having to make either like, taken over by the river or like trying to seize the river and like you know it's not either or i mean 
in that mm. metaphor, like what what it means for me to show up, it's kind of ride the river, right? Or like ride upstream or, you know, just be able to paddle along and like play around in the river too, metaphorically, right? I, I mean, I, I don't know what that really means in like everyday life. Well, I guess here's another way of asking a question to you and David. You know, when I think about my own experience and what you were saying, Xander, around, you know, allows me to continue to play my game. I, I think from the six perspective, I want to keep playing my game, yet I'm pretty aware that I'm not getting what I want mm-hmm. as I'm playing my game. Mm-hmm. So there's this chronic dissatisfaction that I'm, I'm co-creating. And so I, I want to keep doing my thing, but I, I at the same time feel dissatisfied. And I guess that would be one question for you and for David is this, you know, I want a relationship where I never, I'm never asked to specify so that I can continue to control what little parts of this world I do control. I guess one way of phrasing John's question would be, where does that strategy feel painful for you? Where are you getting in your own way? How, how does it show up for you that you're getting in your own way and motivate you to try something different? I, I still don't understand the basic question. Well, I guess to the extent that I've done any growing, it's been because of the pain I self-inflict. <laughs> and so, you know, we talk about attachment right. to disconnect and we talk about these relational affects that are my, for the six, my, the default mode for me is the six. And I do those things, yet over time have become increasingly aware that the very thing that I'm seeking, I take myself further away from. I'm dissatisfied with my relationships. I'm dis- I feel alone. I don't feel supported. And I do all these things to make sure that that is how I continue to experience reality. That is what is motivating for me to actually look at things differently, the pain that I've caused myself. And I would... I'm curious from a nine perspective, are you actually satisfied with attachment to disconnect? And if not, what is, what is the pain you experience that motivates change? So I'll jump in. I've, I've had a few relationships that were long-term, you know, two, three, four years where there was the sense over time based on actually arguments, heated arguments, and a lot of pain and anguish and suffering together, where the woman um, made it clear to me that she was really solidly with me and solidly seeing me, um, and I was absolutely in that context, finally, let's say, congealed into a central something, you know, a central being, central me. And that is extremely daunting and profound. And it's a huge, like, revelatory wake-up call of a feeling um, because it's... uh, well, it was just undeniable based on all of everything that happened and, and and certain specific conflicts and so forth that this person was 
really, really seeing me and really, really valuing me and willing to, you know, fight to the death for me, with me, whatever, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. And so what comes up for me with that is, um, first of all, it brings growth in the sense of, you know, actually getting these glimpses into my individuality. Um, but it's also extremely, it's sort of like it's um, spiritually daunting because it feels like, wow, I'm not even close to where this person is in terms of that firmly committing to another human being. And it feels like I'm uh, not worthy of that uh on being on the receiving end of that how did she communicate her because that to me sounds like that was a good attachment how did she communicate what made that relationship feel like you had the space to basically integrate congeal come into a self <clears throat> well i mean it was over the course of time but it, culminated certainly in specific events and specific arguments where I was essentially refusing to be loved mm. a and she was angrily communicating you know <laughs> she was just going to have none of that you know what I mean it was just like fuck you this is where I'm at and uh couple of these relationships were actually with nines as well, where they were fully engaged and sort of became like a tiger of love or something, you know, it's just like where it's, it's truly, um, yeah, just a slap in the face. It's like a wake up, you know, and yeah, it came from, from me avoiding love. Hmm. And avoiding love to settle for some kind of like attachment in the style of this sort of vague location and distance right mm -hmm. right right like love feels like you're really actually hitting me hitting me in the good sense Cinder, <laughs> <laughs> what about you um i think for me there's sometimes this feeling of like um like waking up and feeling like if i if i died today like what is my life amounted to kind of thing if i'm all if i'm consistently just playing this game of being unlocated to the world then i can't then i'm not really doing anything in the world um and so if i keep doing that then like what am i even doing here kind of thing like what the fuck have i what have i done <laughs> mm -hmm. and and partially that's this like existential dread of like what am i doing here that makes me want to you know, I feel like get my shit together and like do stuff, I guess. <laughs> like commit to a path. Commit to yeah. Yeah, commit to a path, commit to something. What about you, Courtney? In terms of the qualities of the relationship or the pain that motivates me to change? Uh I guess a little bit of both like in the sense of like as a six, there is what I you know, what I understand is there's support or the potential for support that some relationships offer. And so it would seem like the healthy attachment for a six is a support that helps you find your own 
location and inner support. And I would imagine that some of that knowing how to love or be loved comes from the misses, the lack of support, or the ways that uh, people in relationship couldn't support you, or something like that. Or you know, I, and I imagine also with the six, uh, it can be hard to distinguish in love where someone is abandoning you versus where someone is giving, like passing you like the baton. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel that, like when I think back to good relationships I've had um, or parts of my current relationship where they've been, where it's been really working well. Um, I do agree that there is this helping me see my own ability to make decisions or be effective or, or to be basically be like a trustworthy source uh, and like affirming, like, you know what you're doing. You have good intuition like for me, like there's a real, like I have a really strong memory around giving birth actually where I have three children, but there was one child where I showed up to the hospital very early and the doctor examined me and was like, you're nowhere near close to labor. And I said, well, then I want to go home. And he looked at me and he said, actually, I've seen you give birth before. And so I, I think you're here for a reason. Like, I think you, your body actually knows what it's doing. And even though I don't see any signs of this, I'm going to trust that you're here for a reason. Mm. And he was 100% right. Within four hours, I had the baby. So you were 100% right. And I was 100% right. <laughs> I had a friend recently visit me that, like, we were really good friends in college. And we, I mean, we're still good friends. We just don't see each other much. And he's a six, uh, social six, with eight fix, three fix. He's had a really rough life and had a lot of, like, jumping around in terms of like belief systems and ideologies and things like this and he you know <laughs> he he's just gone all over the place and he recognizes it but it's sort of like he does it anyway or can't help it or something but and he's looking for some sort of source of meaning often spiritual but he said and it was really moved by this something like you know i try to fight this for a long time i try to be like like i, I don't know if he said it this way but like you know tough or strong or autonomous he said, I realize that I'm a six and part of what always comes to me is like being the knight that the king hands a sword and that like I'm a knight and like I need to find the right king to serve. I need to find the right thing to serve. It's like the sense of um, service for him was like unavoidable that that was like what he was oriented to. And, he, and there was something there about like, you know, I don't know in terms of like what has given him, what has been a good attachment versus a negative attachment. but in terms of like seeing all these ways in which the support systems kind of crumbled, it seemed to be bringing him individuation. Mm. And so, I mean, that may be a negative example, but I, I, I feel like uh, maybe with attachment types and like Nancy, I haven't heard from you in a while, so I'm curious, but uh, attachment types can get really in this place of going back to the same thing over and over again and not learning from heartbreak nor learning from things that push them in an individuation direction. And so it's like one of those two things, like a heartbreak or like a, oh, this is passing individuation to me or helping me integrate that thing. Those seem like the healthy attachments. Yeah, and I, I'm going to say one more thing, and then Nancy can... I, I think for me also there's something about like my own story, I think is evidence of this too, is, is helping me get out of my head, um, just being more embodied. And I think 
for me, relationships where that's been something we, we do together, whether, you know, and there's lots of different ways to do that, obviously. Uh, I find that very grounding and very settling in a way that I think is helpful for my own individuation. Nancy? So what am I supposed to say? <laughs> Like what has been painful <laughs> in terms of you? Can we give you a script? <laughs> I'm just seeing what my brain is thinking right now. Yeah. Um, so I guess you're asking what helps me individuate. Well, Courtney was just speaking to like somebody mirroring her own sense of guidance uh, and authority. Like was was a helpful example of a relationship that helped her individuate and see herself. Uh, I think attachment types get caught up in, and I, I think, you know, he, uh, hexad types do this too in their own way, but attachment types get really caught up in trying to like make something work. You know, it's that like, because it's the adapting thing. And so it seems like either getting their, the, their heart really broken and the shit kicked out of them in terms of like, oh, this thing that I do, this adapting I do is not working. Or in terms of um, this person, this situation, this relationship, this dynamic is helping me see myself and locate myself. Like kind of what Xander was referring to at the beginning of like certain kinds of disconnects even or, or negations help me find myself. So like I was curious as a three, uh, you know, just your thoughts on that. Let's see. So if I were to speak to like how I find uh, where I lay, where I land with like political beliefs. Um, it's really helpful to speak with uh, well-informed sixes typically is like who really helps me like land on my beliefs uh, because people ask, they ask why a lot, right? They want you to back things up. So people who kind of force me to and give me the space to like sit with a why can really help me land with my more like you know logical beliefs um or even just like in terms of identity like helping you find nancy oh god all right personally i think that like really uh negative experiences have kind of helped me find myself more so than positive ones mm. Um, which, you know, I'd rather it be positive, but I think, uh, when I experience shame about going, like, like you said, like I would, especially when I was younger, I would go back to the same thing over and over and over and over and over expecting it to work, mm -hmm. uh, because I could, I could make it work, right? If I tried hard enough, if I did the right thing enough, then it would work. I just had to power through. Mm -hmm. And when I experienced shame, because I didn't it was so obvious that I couldn't make it work anymore. Mm -hmm. um, that's what really like caused my uh, facade to come crumbling down. So uh, what I've heard from some attachment types, and I'm curious, all the attachment ladies and fellas, is that there's often this uh, sort of conviction that I, something's wrong with me like if something's not working it's my fault and i have to i guess adapt to make it work uh this is sort of assumption that somebody out there figured it out or i should be able to figure out how to do that mm -hmm. uh does that ring true yep yeah that's 100 percent true god yeah what about you xander do you feel that way yeah yeah well yeah 
someone's figured out how to live their life and kind of have a presence in the world that has some sort of impact. And I mean, it's not like I, I care to make some kind of impact or something, but it seems like they're living meaningful lives or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, I'm sure you, pro- <laughs> I wonder, I'm, I'm sure you agree that like, <laughs> I like look around like I've never thought anybody had anything figured out or like yeah. I was like I, I was like I remember several different realizations of like everybody's fucked up and like mm-hmm. nothing there's nothing out there I want to be like uh, yeah even me as a as a kid I think yeah. it started with my parents realizing pretty young like oh shit they don't know what they're doing right <laughs> and you know just kind of I, I've heard from my sister uh, who's also who's also an eight who's pointed out like what she considers like arrogant perspectives that I've had, like this assumption, like you come into the Enneagram and you look at what's available and I'm looking at how bad the material is. And I'm thinking I can do better <laughs> and how, and she, from her perspective to me, it was like, yeah, of course, that's how, if you see something you don't like, you, you, you assume that they don't know what they're doing. And you're going to do it better. But that's to a lot of people, like an arrogant perspective. So I've always assumed that nobody has anything figured out and we're all kind of figuring it out as we go along. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, you know, act like they know what they're doing, but they don't. <laughs> the sick no. reaction to what you're describing is, what am I, what am I not understanding that I think that this is crap? Because it, it's got to be good. I, the fact that I think mm. it's bad, I'm wow. missing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is a yeah. spot where my social lastness, where I'm with the Hexad boys. Like, mm-hmm. I, think, I think most people are idiots and nobody's producing anything that's worth a shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's this fascinating because it's like i mean the sense of no is so clear and immediate so even though like i think i can t- i like i'm in a relationship with attachment type i I've, you know i know all kinds of attachment types blah 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 like there's something that feels very much like in the dark about what attachment types are doing for me <laughs> and I, because the sense of out there outside of myself feels like such a wasteland <laughs> and like I'm like, wait, we're like, so what are you, what are you connecting to? Like, you know, that there's something there that it's like, I don't quite believe mm-hmm. it. Um, mm. to, to give a, just a anecdotal example of the sense of no versus the sense of yes being so innate. Uh-huh. This, at the beginning of this episode, when you asked Emika to say the um, number for the love line, Emika just rattled off some numbers and was like, actually, I'm not sure. Let me check. I would have never done that. <laughs> I would have absolutely been like, let me check. I don't know. <laughs> like, you're just like, yeah, maybe, but you know, let me, let me see. That's basically everything that comes out of my mouth. <laughs> I know. And it's so frustrating because I'm over here like, 20 minutes behind you guys i'm like oh yeah okay <laughs> just let it go just just it, it'll it's always surprising it's, it's not there to let it go man because <laughs> a lot of times i'll do and say something i'll be like oh man that was probably stupid and then i'll listen to it back and i'm like oh shit i know what the fuck i'm talking about <laughs> <laughs> for, for the hex that boys when, wow. when when someone is talking to you like what is your mind doing Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to know. Well, I, I don't know how much uh, this is just being triple hacks at or being social blind, but I have realized in doing this podcast that I am a pretty terrible listener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when someone is talking, I can only listen. I can't, like, 
think about anything else. I can only... Yeah, that's um, why it takes so long to answer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and I think part of the reason the Hexat thing works is that we're not really taking in... Um, like, we're not really taking in what's going on. So a lot of times, I don't know what we've talked about until I actually edit and listen to the podcast because... <laughs> I'm I, I'm taking a piece of maybe what John says or what somebody says, and, and if it sparks something in me, then then I'm already going off on what I want to say, and and so I I don't really know fully. I mean I know, but I don't really know until I get to listen to it twice what was actually said. So I've mm. you know realized, man, like I'm I'm not really I'm listening, but I'm kind of doing a lot of selective hearing. So um, just really working up. Paying attention is is something that I've I've realized in the last few years. And so, to me, that's the good answer to John's question. And I think we've spoken about this before on other pods that the hexad types are not listening, and the attachment types are. Um, yeah. And I'm making this up, but I I'm I I'm guessing that you can feel that at some level, John. That hexad is not listening. That I'm not listening. Well, when you say like, what am I getting out of all these attachment relationships? And what I'm, what I'm offering is that we're listening to you. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Like I would say that when I am in a conversation, what's going through my head is like, first I kind of take everything on like an emotional level. Like it's like, I can't, I can't remember specific things, but I remember emotional tones really well. And like people will tell me details about themselves and I won't remember the details, but I'll remember the emotional tone. So somebody be like, oh, yeah, like, um, I had this kind of job or I lost this person or, you know, or this is really important to me. Sometimes I don't remember the detail, but I like and, and it, it sometimes I'm like, I can't re- believe I don't remember that. But I remember the emotional tone. And that was like in my back pocket in terms of like the like emotional collage each person has. Uh, but in general, when I'm listening to people, no matter who it is, I'm like not believing any of it. And I'm having a lot of uh emotional impressions and there's a kind of like a emotional uh echolocation of like it's not just oh i resonate with that or i don't resonate with that with sort of like i'm getting an emotional collage or emotional uh like uh you know like uh those those underwater maps they use with sonar or something like kind of feeling it out but there's like when someone says something when someone makes a statement like i just don't it's it's like just not even a thing it's just like i just don't believe it and there's the feeling of, of something being unlocked that I think I really resonate with with people. So like the people that I feel like I'm friends with, uh, I feel like there's like an un- unlocking that happens. Like there's a movement or a deepening that happens between us. It's kind of this weird thing where it's immediately a no to everything in a certain way. What, another thing that's interesting to me, what you just said, John, and I wonder if Nancy, David, and Xander feel the same way. Some of also why I hesitate to be overly specific is and I don't want to like overstate this but it's like I take my words really seriously mm-hmm. and it's like once they're out there I'm not sure I can take them back um I can't change my mind or if I still or even if I change my mind I still got to reference what I said earlier or something like that mm-hmm. and so like there's a heaviness or gravitas to whatever I, or I'm making up that there's this heaviness or gravitas to whatever I say that makes it feel like it's a bigger deal to reveal. And what I heard you just saying, it's like, you're not actually, you don't believe what people are saying to begin with. Mm -hmm. So it's like not a big deal. 
mm-hmm. to just throw something out because it's like whatever. I, I also feel, at least maybe it's before, I'm kind of anxious or uh, ready to go to, to like, define myself in that gravitas way that you spoke of. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, let me do this. Like, I want to define myself. That maybe, I don't know, there's something different there. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, because uh, sometimes people have, have commented about this show that uh, we should give, like, a, a, some kind of timeline or roadmap or... And part of what makes this this doing this pod interesting is I don't prepare. Like it's kind of like what comes out right then in the moment is really honest. And it's like I might think about what I want to say beforehand, but it never comes out the way that I thought it would. So it's like this is me, Emika, at this fucking moment, what I'm thinking, what mm-hmm. I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And there's something cool about uh being able to just put your stamp on you know, I might change my mind. I might say it differently next week. But today, right this moment, this is this is where I'm at. Uh, discovering that, and whatever I'm thinking, like I don't I don't know what's gonna come out. I'm just gonna go. And so there's something about I think all the hexat types are really comfortable with just all right. Here here's what I here's where I'm at right now. And I feel like uh, the attachment types are um, really hesitant to put their stake in the ground because, you know, the, the ground is really shifty for them. So there's not this sort of uh, thing about looking back and like, this is where I was at at that moment. They're not really playing that game. It's really, uh, who do I have to be for this situation? So there's a lot of hesitancy to put your stake in the ground. I think it goes back to something we said early on, uh, in another call, which is like, uh, Hexad, it's like, let me put my stake in the ground and then I can meet you and adapt. Mm-hmm. Versus yeah. Yeah. Uh, attachment is like let me adapt and then I feel comfortable revealing myself just like we talked about last week with eight how everything's a negotiation I think one thing I wanted to mention is that I didn't want to make it seem like eights are so immovable because it's like I have my location and I'm assuming that you've got your location now you know if we want to do something together we have to negotiate you're gonna have to give something up and as long as I don't have to give up something that is non-negotiable to me I can meet you halfway, but the assumption is that we don't have common ground and that if we do want to uh, um, meet some, to do something together, that I'm going to have to give a little bit up and you're going to have to give a little bit up and let's just, let's, let's make a deal. (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting to me to hear that though, because it's almost like what I hear you guys saying is, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost like there's a willingness to see identity as more ephemeral in the hex set, like this is where I'm at today, but it may not be where I'm at tomorrow. And I'm okay with that. Like I'm okay with specifying knowing that the specificity may change tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, it's probably not going to change tomorrow because from yeah. my perspective, uh, there is an essential self that there, right. you know, like I can, when I was a lot younger, I used to think, Oh, I can do anything. And then you, you start to look back and you see, actually there's only a couple things that I'm located in a couple things. And I believe that everyone is located in a certain few areas. And so, yes, I'm, I think that I'm going to put my, my stake in the ground and it might change tomorrow, but I also know that it's, it's not really changing that much. Mm. Yeah. I wanted to ask Sandra and David and now Nancy's gone, but like whether that heaviness that I'm speaking about around, you know, like unwilling to commit, like is something around like the words. You're, you're saying that attachment types, Types take identity that take their own identity too seriously, 
right? That's yeah. kind of what you're saying. Yeah. 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 I think. Yeah. I think generally, I mean, I have to think about that more, but I think generally that's true. Yeah. Hmm. It makes sense that we would, because we're not as actually fundamentally baseline confident in our identity. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, that, Reminds me of how of how often people get upset about typing and and I mean what we're saying or what I'm saying is I guess in a hexad perspective that uh, your who you are is is separate from your typing so don't be upset because it's got nothing to do with you it's just you don't even have to accept it you can, you're still going to be you but that's not really the way attachment types are looking at it. I think that's just so interesting this idea that we take it too seriously, and if that's a story we tell ourselves to keep us from ever bothering to do it or if there really is almost like we haven't exercised that muscle very much and so it feels very serious well before i go uh one thing that came up for me is i feel like that's a learned behavior for me it's probably not but it feels learned because i've watched people do some really stupid things and then have to backtrack out of it mm-hmm. and i'm like yeah that's stupid you shouldn't have done that mm-hmm. So. Like that uh, to me, it feels like I have just watched people crash and burn. And in, in terms of identity, in terms of putting their stake in the ground, and then realizing All of it, it. Yeah, like you know, I've just politicians, parents, teachers. You just you just watch them crash and burn based on things that they've said in the past, and you're like, well, I'm not going to do that. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's a there's a level to I connect to that too. But then I always come around and say like. But, like, they actually did something, you know, but, like, they lived or something like that. It's <laughs> what, like, what have I, what, what, when have I crashed and burned? When have I, like, done something, you know? I don't know. <laughs> I don't need Go to ahead. crash and burn anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should stop there. I have quite more questions, but I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should probably, uh, if there's more juice and more um, topics that we could explore, which I'm sure there are, because Courtney's a bottomless pit of questions, yes. we can do another call. <laughs> In the best possible way. The best possible way. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm trying to figure out because it, it, I feel like, again, it didn't get rolling until like half an hour in, but like, right. what, what happened? Like, why? <laughs> well, I think it, 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 just in listening to all the calls, it usually takes about 30 minutes to warm up um, to get in to really get good. And we, if sometimes we get lucky and we hit our stride immediately, which is usually not always the case. If, if there's the right topic and everyone's like, you know, but this is a difficult topic, and you kind of have to find it. So I think it takes a while to warm up. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Can I throw you guys a teaser? Sure. So I I have also been thinking about I can't remember if it was a post or we talked about it on a podcast or something. The idea that you know all of us is flanked, all of us are flanked by the other two types. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, I've two things that I've been exploring. The first is what if within all of us is attachment, frustration, and rejection, and you lead with one and the other one sort of, because I, I do feel like there's a self-rejection occurring in the attachment types. Yeah. Yeah. David had a post uh, that was kind of exploring that, but it was, uh, it was, yeah, I, I think it's more, it's a, it's a more complicated uh, concept to unpack, but I think there's definitely something there. You could sort of maybe yeah. say, Maybe there is like a stacking of if you're like for me being rejection, I, I might say that frustration is secondary for me. Maybe that would make uh, wings make way more sense. <laughs> you're right. Right. Yeah. 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 And so we, it be there might be something to explore there. Maybe that's an entryway to explore wings. 
uh, because that's a, another big topic to get into. Because also, I do think that we've been and trying to like, I think we've been a little like overly black and white about it. And, and just to sort of unpack what all of this stuff is. But the reality is that hexatypes are attaching also. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's it's not like, oh, like you guys don't do you know, it's just it's a different flavor of. And so that to me was like kind of if we've unpacked all of this enough, like bringing the nuance back in then. Uh, well, OK, well, what does attachment actually mean for hexatypes? Um, and like, I have a curiosity around like, is frustration the same or different than disconnect? Like you could say that, uh, the, the way I, I think about it is like, you know, we're social blind, but we're still doing social. It's just that we're not aware or conscious that we're doing social. It's, it's compartmentalized. And I'm recognizing that I might, I'm doing attachment or I'm, I'm absorbing, but I'm not realizing that I'm doing it. So uh, a funny example of this, of the way this shows up is I don't remember what I've said and I don't remember where I've I've gotten some of the things that I'm saying. So I might hear something from somebody tomorrow or yesterday, and it'll just come out of me like it was it came from me. But it, actually, my sister yeah. said it. My sister said it the day before. And so there's this absorbing thing, unconscious absorbing that's happening. Um, whereas maybe attachment types are more aware of that attachment game, whereas. I'm not aware that I'm doing it, but it's still happening. And it's, it's, I'm thinking that, oh, this came from me. I, I, or I don't know where it came from. I just, you know. Whereas as an attachment type might be monitoring that stuff and thinking it would be uncool to copy somebody. Right? Sure, so, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's like y'all are social blind, but y'all still do it. You just aren't. I just don't know it. Yeah, just yep. don't. I'm not aware of it. So it's like we're doing attachment, but um, it's so far back and maybe compartmentalized that I'm not even. It comes out, it's like a, yeah, like a demon function where it's happening, but it's happening in these, these weird ways that I don't even know that I'm doing it. It'll be interesting to explore it that way as a mm -hmm. stack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And all of the similar things, right? Where like, you know, you have to believe certain things about that latent piece in order to keep it latent. Yes. Yeah, I, I want to get into the, the whole concept of a blind spot. Um, Maybe that would be uh, just how a blind spot is created. I don't, I haven't gotten to the part of John's book to see if he really um, gets into that. How if you have a dominant instinct, then that automatically means that you will have a blind spot or that if you're overemphasizing one aspect or if you're overemphasizing rejection, frustration, then that means that you're pushing away from the last one, which is, I think, how the instincts work as well. Um, so it'd be interesting to, to, to see how maybe in order to prop up rejection, I have to push away from attachment or be unconscious of attachment mm. or, you know, depending yeah. on what your stacking is. Yeah. That would be really interesting. Well, and then the other thing I guess I'm trying to parse out is, you know, and I was thinking about it with, when, with David's comments, you know, is this, we've been really focused on relationships, but I mean, six social, we're attack, we're attaching to ideology, right. And like mm. sort of, you know, like, you know, vague authority, not just like relationships. And so I was sort of also wanting to think about how does this work with not just intimate relationships? What does attachment, frustration and rejection look like for a non-social type? We've sort of been talking about it a little bit, but like what exactly would that flavor be? Would it actually be non-people things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I just think that like I am aware that I can't not necessarily disentangle attachment from social 
And it just seems like that would be a helpful way to to think about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll, Courtney, I'll send you that article that Emma Cub was referencing. The, the gist of it, just super briefly, is that maybe attachment is actually made from rejection and frustration. Oh, it's so interesting. Hmm. And feel okay. free to just slice it up. But yeah, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on it. Okay. Great. All right, y'all. Okay. All right. Bye, All right, guys. guys. Bye. See you later. Bye. Bye.